You are listening to Rare Voices, the show that reveals the wisest path to a fulfilled life for patients with rare and orphan disorders. Brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. I'm your host, Donovan Quill. After years of tests, countless late-night WebMD searches, and a sea of referrals, after hours on the phone with insurance companies discussing coverage and payment plans, after all of that, that is when you finally receive the words, we think your son has a rare condition. You breathe a sigh of relief because you think you are going to get all the answers you need. Unfortunately, for patients with rare and orphan conditions, it is only the beginning of your journey. At least, that is where the journey began for Monica Weldon, our guest for this episode of Rare Voices. Monica was able to absorb those words and the emotional roller coaster attached to them and create a network of support and a vision for what advocacy can mean for patients with rare and orphan conditions. In 2014, Monica founded Bridge the Gap, SynGap Education and Research Foundation. While most patient advocacy groups focus on an illness, Monica focused her foundation on the research involving a rare gene mutation. As a result, she was able to build a coalition with other advocacy groups research institutions, and most impressively, with manufacturers. Today, Monica is a force for change in patient advocacy. She is an author and a keynote speaker at countless conferences, even beyond healthcare. During National Caregivers Month, I am excited to bring you Monica Weldon, because most importantly, she has redefined what it means to be a caregiver with what she has accomplished on behalf of her son, Beckett. So Monica, for the past few years, you've been a sought-after speaker, author, and been very visible for patients at different advocacy events. In fact, that's where we met at an advocacy event, you know, a few years back. But your journey to today was a very personal one. Can you talk to me about that journey that you set yourself on a number of years back? Oh, thank, well, thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, yes, I'm glad I ran into you at, uh, I guess I kind of jumped all over the place. And uh, I guess what started me having, uh, you know, where we are now in our journey, uh, or my journey, is my son was the sixth uh, patient in the world that was diagnosed with a SYNGAP1 mutation, and that's S-Y-N-G-A-P-1, and it is a gene. And he was diagnosed in 2012 and we, um, uh, you know, we'd gone to genetics, we'd gone through 19 different specialists and really, really tried to uh, find out uh, what was causing all his delays, uh, all the problems that he was having. And it turns out it was this little gene that uh, didn't make enough protein in his brain. And when... I had talked to the, uh, the, oh gosh, the genetics counselor, the genetics doctor. He said that um, they didn't know anything about this gene. And, and that's when he told me he was this, you know, the sixth patient and uh, in, in, uh, that had been recorded uh, to have this mutation. And I was like, how do you guys not know what, what, what this gene is, you've, you've mapped the human genome and, you know, you, you know, you're, you know, you're supposed to know everything. Right. And, um, and there was nothing. He handed me one paper that showed that it caused intellectual disability. 
And I just kind of looked at him in, in the office and I said, um, I, you know, there's nothing there. And I said, I'm going to find out and I'm going to find out, uh, you know, what this is doing to help my son because I was, you know, living, we were, we were really living a, a complete and total hell. It was, um, and I, and I knew that be, even being my son, how could you be, you know, living, uh, this life of, of being nonverbal and, and delays and, you know, late walking and, uh, the screaming meltdown fits and I mean, would go for hours and, Having to deal with that, um, you know, part, part of my uh, motivation was, um, uh, you know, driving down a, a very long highway, Highway 290 in Houston, uh, notorious. Uh, you sit in traffic forever and um, just sitting at my steering wheel, really just trying to hold myself together, pretty much crying all the way home. I... Uh, have really never felt the loneliest I've ever had uh, in that moment when it really hit me like, this is it. H how can this just be it? And, and I went to, you know, you know, Texas Children's is one of the top hospitals and, um, you know, it, I got home and it, you know, it took me about two days to really process uh, everything. And, and I looked at that paper. I still have that paper. I still have that paper. Um, and I reached out, uh, you know, started going down Google, reached out to the uh, scientist who discovered the gene. And he put me in touch with a scientist, Gavin Rumbach, Scripps, uh, Florida. And I sent him an email. I thought it was actually all over because uh, I guess it took uh, six months to hear back from him. And I had kind of given up. But in the meantime, I was blogging. And uh, uh, it was just... Uh, one of those things that threw me into a whole new realm of rare diseases and, and I knew nothing. I, I knew a little bit, you know, I taught science, my degrees in biology, and, um, I just knew that I had, I could not sit and do nothing and that I was really willing to just sacrifice everything that I could to try to help my son and, and better the quality of life he was having. But also if I could find someone, like him, um, I wouldn't be alone in the world anymore. I, I, I wouldn't be alone. And um, uh, a parent did reach out to me a few months, even after I talked to Dr. Gavin Rumbaugh. Um, and we ended up starting a Facebook group with three people. <laughs> and But we weren't alone anymore. And so that's kind of how I got thrown into this, this space. Um, and since then, I really haven't stopped. Yeah. So, um, with your, with those three people, and with your with your drive to to not give up and to find others, and and looking at that, um, you know, you, you founded an organization called Bridge the Gap, right? So, when you started that organization, what what were your expectations? Kind of what were your pre preconceived notions, and you know, how have they changed from then till now? Oh, wow. You know, um, <laughs> I have to say a lot of it was a mom gut, you know, and I know we have the dad guts too, you know, we've got <laughs> a lot of dads out there that, that, uh, that are, that are pioneers. And, um, you know, I knew that there had to be something more to this. 
I, I really, it, it's so hard to explain. And I have to say, I, I'm kind of a, uh, I, I am a very, uh, I do believe in, in this, this spiritual nudge, I guess, inside you, right? It's, it's, uh, some, it, it was a calling and I knew that something was more, uh, there and it wasn't even a disease. And people said that I was crazy. I researched, I guess, about how to, how to start an organization about two years actually before I started the organization. And I really started in policy. I, I started, uh, looking at, you know, rare diseases and I joined, a, a, a another group called chromosome six, um, because I knew that this gene was on chromosome six and really just started familiarizing myself with the rare disease community. Um, and then really talking to the scientists, uh, found, um, uh, Dr. Holder, uh, one of the other parents that had, had heard about this junior, uh, investigator, I guess at Texas children's. And he was kind of starting out, didn't have a lab then, and he was uh, studying Shank three, and I we ended up ended up going to him after Beckett was diagnosed at five with seizures, and he they knew a little bit about how this gene functioned, but with my curiosity and my scientific background and me uh, uh, working actually before I ever started teaching school, I worked in the environmental testing uh, industry with petroleum products, and so. I knew I knew a little bit about you know chemistry and and how the brain and stuff worked uh, you know uh, just with my background um, in in biology and genetics and all the classes I had to take in college and I I I don't know I just knew that there was something more and it turns out you know when I started the organization people were like well what is your going to be what is your going to be your catch all how are you going to get people's attention. And I said, I don't know. I'm just going to do it. You, you just got to, you just got to do it. You, you just can't let people be, be naysayers and say, just because it's not a named disease doesn't mean it's not significant. And I knew this protein was significant because it was, um, it, it was identified as linking to intellectual disability. And I'm like, how many people in the world have intellectual disability? I mean, you're talking 800 million people in the world, you've got 800,000 people in the United States that have intellectual disability and um, are, are, you know, severe cases of that. And then you've got autism and then uh, the sensory processing issues. And, um, and so I was one of the first people to start uh, an organization based on a gene mutation. Um, and I envisioned the uh, encompassing uh, what the protein did and the lack of protein. What was this causing? Because all of our, our you know, the, the patients that we found over time just showed this huge spectrum. And I said, there has to be something more to what's going on. And this protein, I told the scientists before we ever even really looked into it, I told them, I said, this protein is doing something in the brain that's different. And I, and, you know, when they would tell me these research, you know, studies, and they couldn't figure out uh, why 
certain things in the mice were happening. And I was like, oh, well, I can probably tell you because I act just like the kids. And, and then that's when we started building our relationships with the scientists, because even with the basic scientists, we wouldn't be where we are now. Um, and we just started taking the symptoms and, and focusing on the, say, some of the worst things that our kids had, which was epilepsy and then behaviors. And, um, you know, people thought I was crazy. And I started out with zero money. Uh, I, I took a loan out of the bank and I went and paid for my nonprofit uh, paperwork status. And when I ended up getting that paperwork, I was like, oh my gosh, we can fundraise. And I was so excited with the first year, our, our first fundraiser, we raised $18,000, which doesn't sound like a lot, but we pretty much have been working on a shoestring budget um, the entire time. And I'm one of those people, if you tell me no, I will show you that you can. <laughs> I am <laughs> I'm, uh, just one of those. Uh, I was always told by my parents that I was a tenacious two-year-old. I was very <laughs> persistent and I never took no for an answer. And you couldn't tell me no because I would show you otherwise. And I think that... Um, that that challenge has always been something that I have used to, I don't know, it's in, it's good in some ways and it's bad in some ways. Sometimes right. it backfires on you. <laughs> but that's kind of how we started out. I um, I just dove right in and I knew that, you know, coming from my background as an educator, that, uh, it, you know, knowledge is power. and I am very, uh, very much a strategic thinker. I don't like to waste time. I don't like, I don't like to do things over, uh, by taking shortcuts. And strategy for me is, is why we are here where we are. And some people just didn't understand, um, the strategy that I had and, and basing this organization on a gene and, a, and the gene protein function and finding the patients because, and it turns out after six years, uh, I'm, I, was, I, I, I was right. It, it, it you know, and, and we're now starting to see the overlap in this protein and, um, it, it's just, uh, I just learned everything there was about drug development, what we needed. I, I saturated myself in, in these conferences, which, you know, it was poo-pooed on. I mean, why are you wasting organization money on going to these conferences? Because if you don't know the system, then you're not going to know how to strategically use your money wisely. You're, you, you know, especially if you're on a shoestring budget and you can still drive research without having to raise millions and millions of dollars, even though that would be nice, but we didn't have that luxury. Um, and so you, you have to really think what is the most important. And that's how we built the programs that we have today. So um, uh, a little bit of crazy, I think too. <laughs> 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 threw me into this. A little bit, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, so looking at looking at all of the, uh, you know, and, I, and like I said before, you've, you've been very active, you know, learning these things and and being part of these conferences, and sometimes being, you know, a keynote speaker at some of these conferences. Mm-hmm. What are what are some of the unexpected connections, uh, you know, that you've made uh, throughout this uh, this time, you know, in the, uh, uh, of this world? Oh my goodness! Well, I have to say unexpected connections. I never thought that I would be uh, uh, even mentioned in, in government policy. I never thought that my story would be told in front of Congress. I never thought that I would be able to meet some of these high level, um, like, like key opinion leaders. I, I I never thought that I'd be working with some of the most world-renowned neuroscientists, you know, you know, Dr. Huguenera is like one of the best of the best. Uh, you know, Gavin Rumbaugh was his understudy. And so you have all of these great neuroscientists. Um, hopefully he'll, you know, hopefully, you know, rumor has it, he, he, he's been nominated for the Nobel prize for discovering, uh, this protein code. He actually co-discovered it with Mary Kennedy in 1998 in, in the, in the mouse model. And I never thought that I'd go f- from, you know, teaching sixth grade, seventh grade science. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and, and I honestly have to say, I do miss the classroom. I miss the kids. Um, well, I don't miss having to teach sex ed though in seventh grade. That's like the worst. <laughs> that's, that's, that's like the worst. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, you know, going from, uh, uh, being a school teacher because I had to overcome a lot of the stigma too. And I hate to say it. Teachers don't really get the credit that they deserve. Um, they're very, very, um, uh, I don't know. It's just not, it's not seen as, is a, a prof- it is seen as a professional profession, but it's not, you're just a teacher. It's like, you're not just a teacher. You're changing mind, you know, the, the, the minds of, of everyone. But I never envisioned myself coming out of those four walls. Um, and now I see this organization and I see the teaching and I see the, the the conferences and, and the, the talks that I do as a whole new classroom, reaching a whole new broader audience. I never thought I would, you know, we would reach all every single continent, finding a a a person with Syngap one. We we have them all over the world now. Uh, you know, Mongolia. We've got China. We've got you know Egypt. I, I, I just, I, I never ever in my life would have ever thought that we would reach the world, uh, with, with a, a mutation, which now maybe a little more than 500 patients have been identified, but we know there's more out there and, and the, and the lack of genetic testing and the access to genetic testing is, is a challenge. But the word, the word got out. And I used to always tell my students in class, don't ever, ever, ever have somebody put a label on you and limit you from doing what you were called to do to change the world. 
that's kind of like my motivation behind this. And I, I will tell you, uh, you know, I still have, <laughs> I still have challenges and adversarial uh, things that, you know, come against you, you know, every day that, that, that really throw you off track. But part, part of my, part of my motto is never stopping. And that ended up, I guess my, that's my trademark hashtag, I guess, is never <laughs> stopping. <laughs> I like it. No. And I would say that I, I, since I've met you, I don't think, I don't think I've seen you stop. Uh, you're very active on social media. You're at every conference that I go to. I know, you know, as you know, my family has a uh, genetic disorder as well. And, you know, that's where, why I'm so big in the advocacy world is, you know, mm -hmm. and, I, and I can say that you, you have, uh, You've gone from, you know, the, the sixth person in the world diagnosed to, you know, hundreds. And, you know, I see how active you are with a lot of different organizations. So looking at the show, you know, it's called Rare Voices. And because we want to create an audience for the exceptional, in the spirit of that, what's one thing that you think is not said enough when it comes to therapies for rare and orphan pop patient populations? Oh, Uh, I, I really struggle with the fact that, um, there, there's a lot of struggle trying to bring these rare diseases together and finding the gaps and focusing on, uh, the gaps and the connections between them because genes don't act alone. And, you know, I, you know, that that's one of the strategies, you know, that, that we have as an organization is not just focusing. I mean, we're not just focused on our patient community. I mean, we are, we want a treatment for them, but looking at how the function of this protein interacts with other diseases, uh, I don't believe there is enough out there to 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 combine the these translational science studies and comparing these these rare disorders because you know I've you know even in my own background of, of genetics you know the, my basic understanding of genetics is, is genes don't act alone you you've got several of these proteins like Syngap-1, we're now finding out it behaves differently in different parts of the brain. That's how we found the sensory processing mechanism. And, um, you know, also, you know, a big struggle and a challenge I see is there's not enough focus on incentivizing pharmaceutical companies to, to dive into it. And I have beat, been beating the streets trying to get, you know, pharma interested in saying, you know, Get your R&D team and start looking at this science. You know, you're working on schizophrenia. Well, we've already been identified as one of the top 10 genes linked to schizophrenia. Even though our patients don't exhibit or can't, you know, tell us anything about the schizophrenic diagnosis, but, but they know that that protein has something to do with it. So what if one of the treatments in schizophrenia can help our patient population, you know, be a treatment? Um, access to those drugs, uh, policy. That's one of the reasons I work on Capitol Hill. Policy is, 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 is the changing policy and regulatory avenues that, that we have to take have got to be changed. People have got to stop passing policy that only benefits the people that have deep pockets. 
And, and, and I can tell you right now, I am not in this for the money (laughs) (laughs) and I'm not in it for the fame. Believe me, there's like, you know, you've got your own challenges putting yourself out there because people criticize you and, and, and you've got to have a thick skin and, you know, no, I don't have a PhD, uh, but that doesn't mean I can't think like a PhD. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, um, I mean, those are, I think, some of the big challenges, uh, uh, you know, for rare disease and, and it all ties together. It's bringing it all together and, um, um, and understanding. And it's hard. It's, it's hard when you're a parent and you're exhausted and, I have a lot of people asking, how do you do it? I just do. I mean, there are days where I've crawled up in a ball and I've cried. You know, I, 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 there have been days I have not gotten out of bed where, where you, it paralyzes you, you know, and, but you have to give yourself permission to do that too. And, and, but, but you just get up. You cannot die. You know, you have to, you know, there, there's a saying I've learned through the rare disease space. Do you want to die on that hill? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? You've got to pick yeah. and choose where you're going to put your energy. And and then you want to put your energy where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. And and you won't understand that until you know the space. And uh, and if you understand the space and there are a lot of politics uh, there, there are a lot of politics that go on in, in the space. And um, and I have to say that sucks because it, it holds everything up. And and I know I know, Donovan, you, you, you know me well enough. I'm, I'm pretty much a no nonsense kind of person. And yep. and uh, I've made some <laughs> I don't know if I've made I have made enemies, maybe. <laughs> know uh but uh i don't sugarcoat i don't have time to sugarcoat i um you know i i I love i love people but when it comes to 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 the business side of things i'm not here to make friends and uh i i love my friends (laughs) And and i love people but i i i mean what i say and i say what i mean and i uh, when I say I want to try to find a treatment, help, help my community, it, it's to do just that. And, um, but also it's helping other people too. It, 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 it's, it's lifting up the other groups because that other group may have the answer to what we're missing. And, um, I'm a true believer in, in that, but I, I'm very selective too, because I, I only want to work with people who are mission centered and, and have a parallel mission, uh, to, to what we've established. And, you know, that's where that energy comes in. You've, you've got to pick and choose and you don't have to be a part of everything, uh, to prove your, 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 your salt. Right. I mean, you know, you, 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 you have to, Pick and choose. So, I don't know if I answered that question or not. Did I answer no, that you question? Did. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, you, you got it. You know, and, and you know, just to just to you know, 
basically even add to what you were saying is, you know, I, I know you're a no nonsense person and you, and you, you know, you tell people what you think and what you feel, but what you feel and what you, you think is it comes, it comes out of love and it comes out of, you know, the passion you have and, you know, listening to you speak and, and seeing, you know, seeing you at some of the advocacy events that, that we've been together at, it really shows the reason why people follow you, people look up to you and people listen to you is because of that passion and that, that, that place of love that, all, that your cause comes from. So Monica, you know, we talked about how you got the news from your son and then, you know, the, you, t- you touched on a lot of different points that you, you know, starting the SYNGAP One Foundation and all of the, uh, all of the hurdles that you had to go through and looking at some other parent who was, you know, is in the same, same position as you today. And they're, you know, they have something that's that their, their child's diagnosed with or a loved one's diagnosed with. Looking at advice for those folks and looking at all the different gates and that you had to walk through and hurdles you had to jump over, can you give some advice to those those parents and those people that are you know dealing with a loved one who's diagnosed with something that's so rare that they have no idea or never heard of it? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I I've been told I need to do a workshop on something like this. <laughs> I just haven't had time to put anything like this together. Um. Well, like I was saying, I'm very strategic uh, in what what uh, I do, and it actually took me about two years to learn the space, to learn about drug development, um, really understanding uh, all the key components to to getting to a treatment. And uh, you know, I've noticed in the rare space a lot of um, a lot of organizations, you know, believe that it, it it's all about basic science. And, and, and it is, I mean, you start out with basic science, but to get past that and to, I mean, it's not stop basic science altogether. That's where you find a lot of these mechanisms, but, but I mean, we, we had to, to, we had to focus on several different pillars. Okay. And, and, and when, you know, when you, when you start a business, you you have to have, you know, a mission and a strategy and you have to have goals within reason, right? Attainable goals. And so uh, I call them the three pillars uh, of rare disease. And uh, you, you first have to get awareness out there. And these three pillars all have to work simultaneously. If you're not working these three pillars uh, simultaneously, then you're not going to get to the rooftop. You're not going to get to what you're trying to achieve because these all work uh, in parallel with each other and next to each other uh, uh, and supporting each other. So um, I first started out with, oh, my God, Beckett is the sixth one, how are we going to find, I mean, it's like finding a needle in a haystack and, and well, well, how am I going to find cases if no one knows about the gene? So how am I going to get the information to the researchers if they don't know about the patients? So I started out with patient registries. Not just a patient registry. I learned early on from watching other successful larger disease organizations what they had been doing for 30 years. How can I do what these people in 30 years in half the time? Then also had to run parallel to that was awareness. And so I, I targeted 
uh, the, uh, uh, the American College of Genetics Conference in, you know, in Arizona in 2016. Uh, about the same time we were, we were trying to educate our, our, our professionals and finding researchers uh, to do our very first international conference, but also getting the families there. And um, we actually have a paper published on our, on our first conference. Um, and I went and I took probably the three most valuable papers that I had that were, that were published on Syngap one at the time. And I walked that entire convention center handing out these papers, uh, at the booths of almost every genetic testing company that I could find gathering business cards, handing out my business cards like they were candy on Halloween. <laughs> saying, contact me. Uh, I, I need to get this gene on your panels. It's an autism, epilepsy, and intellectual uh, disabilities gene. Is this gene on your panels? And I went through, and the first uh, genetic test panel that I ended up getting our gene on was the was Breda Genetics out of Italy. And they put that uh, gene uh, on their panels. And then I went to some of the larger companies um, and just started, start, just started raising awareness like that. And they probably thought I was crazy, but, you know, with the research that was coming out and, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Rick Huguenier, uh, publishing, uh, the, the, you know, the big paper on it being, um, linked to brain plasticity, which is important for adults. It started becoming very hot gene. And it, and then it's the most abundant protein in the brain. We discovered that. And, um, being the most abundant protein in the brain, well, you need to start figuring out how this protein works. And so then, then we started putting together our sitters of excellence. And these are, and I do realize that there are two types of definitions of centers of excellence. You, you know, uh, you know, these are our little rare disease centers of excellence. This is our team. This is what we put together and what we needed to help understand the disease, but also in the process of, of getting researchers on board while treating our patients in the now understanding the patient profile and the patient phenotype. And they take that information and then they start working with our basic scientists to find all of these mechanisms. Well, once you have a mechanism that you believe is going to be a good target, then you start working on industry. And I, I was told straight out of the hatch, the best advice that I got. And I, the, actually, this advice was from Courtney Miller, uh, uh, Dr. Gavin Rumbaugh's uh, wife at, um, at, uh, Scripps, who does research with him, who's, who's, uh, published on several papers with him. And she studies pain and opioid addiction and, and different things like that. And so they've combined their labs to look at different mechanisms because that's how we found the pain sensory processing mechanism uh, because our kids have high pain thresholds. So when you put all of these components together of raising awareness, number one, you're going to get the attention of industry and it was a gene. So I needed to get it on genetic testing panels. And currently right now, I think I have over a hundred companies in the world that has it on every single panel uh, for those panels. Now I've got to do a speech panel. <laughs> it needs to go on speech panels now. <laughs> um, uh, that they have. And, 
so, so you, you'll get more because those are, those are, even though those aren't the ideal genetic tests you need because we would rather have the whole genome. Um, but to identify patients, to get them pointed in the right direction, I needed to have the least amount of access because these panels are a lot less expensive. Insurance will cover them more. And this is when I got into the policy side. You have to understand the policy to make better policy so you can have access to these things. And then I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, well, it's going to be take a gene therapy or some kind of ASO or some kind of biologic or, uh, you know, drug that's going to help treat our kids. That's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. How am I going to get an insurance company to pay for this? So then that's when you, you understand all the, 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 the insurance and the policy and the regulatory side. So, you know, you have awareness, then you have research as a pillar, and then you have your, 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 your outside goals, your policy, your, your, your research building capacity. Um, that it's going to, that, that are going to establish your little centers of excellence, your clinics with your teams there who are going to learn about the disease and the process where you have to send your patients to go for treatment. But then when you're ready to work with industry and you're to the point where you've got industry interested, you have all of this structure, this infrastructure put in place. You've, you've got the gene already being identified. You, you've got your programs to raise awareness. You've got your research capacity going on where you've got translational science um, happening. You're taking these animal model mechanisms and turning in them into to good human mechanisms to target something to now find a drug or molecule. And Courtney Miller told me, academia doesn't make drugs. Industry makes drugs. And if I want a drug, I've got to get to industry. So what does industry need? Industry needs a natural history. Industry needs clinical data. And so we structured our programs at our organization to bring our researchers together to meet the patients. We also have our mini conferences for our families where we establish clinics because as you know, rare disease is incredibly hard to gather data. Uh, on, on patients because we're so far in between everywhere. So we plan a weekend and we schedule, um, we schedule, excuse me, we schedule clinics where our clinicians can gather the clinical data that they need to start getting a better picture. I mean, we're, we're writing standards of care, quality of life, uh, abstracts. Um, we're learning more about this disease and, and its progression. And, and we did all this in six years. And if you, but, but it, and I will say it is not easy at all, but you have to be dedicated and think strategy. What can you do with the least amount of money? And everybody's saying, well, how did you get all that done? Well, <laughs> you know, have, having money, you know, we have, we, I think the most we've ever raised in one year was $217,000. You know, we, we haven't hit the jackpot, right? I mean, so you would say millions of dollars. I mean, we've got other organizations in the world doing that, but why do you need to go out and raise millions of dollars when all I need to do is write a, a letter of support 
provided by the a sample of our data that we collect from our database to show that the theory that these basic scientists have is plausible because I've already got the the human data in a pre-sample to turn in with that grant. And Dr. Rumbaugh himself has won close to $10 million over the last six years just on SYNGAP1. And uh, the NIH has funded over probably $40 million on this one gene in the last six years. And if you don't, if y'all don't believe me, y'all can go calculate it. Y'all can go pull up all the NIH grants that they've given on this one gene. And I haven't had to raise one dime of that. What we do as an organization is we provide seed grants for these clinics. $25,000 here. If that's all I can raise, then $25,000 will have to be that. But that's that sample of data that's going to go and get these huge grants from the NIH. And, you know, and, and money can come from other places. But, you know, ma- grandma and grandpa and our patient community only has so much money. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, you, yeah. you've got to think strategic and use your money wisely. And I'd, I would rather put it in into preparing for clinical trials into a database into raising awareness to find more cases, because if you don't have enough cases, then you're not going to get industry interested in running clinical trials. But but if you've had that, if you make it more attractive to industry and create these teams of doctors who are actively working and publishing on your disease, on this gene, and, and they're already treating the patients in their clinic, you have your clinical trial sites right there. It's not easy, um, but I'd have to say, get ready to put in about 60 hours of work a week and you have to time manage because, of course, you've got family, you've got laundry, <laughs> which you just heard <laughs> <laughs> go off. <laughs> you've got, you know, you've got all the other stuff. You know, there is a sacrifice, though, and you have to be willing to sacrifice uh, that. And And for me, my son is worth it. For me, my patient community is worth it because I live the life that they live. And it's not easy. Uh, It's still not easy. And, um, uh, and I, I, I think uh, that was a, that was a, that was a long three pillars. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, and, and I, what I want to, what I want to say is, you know, what I want to tell people is I've seen your, you, you work tirelessly through this and, you know, I, I met you, I want to say it was at the World Orphan Drug Conference, and I think it was probably right about the time you started really pushing on industry. <laughs> and what I was so impressed with is, you know, and I don't know if you remember how we met, but we were it, we were at a, a cocktail hour, but at the cocktail hour or the, or the socialization event that was happening that night, it, I was standing there with, uh, with, with, a, with an individual who runs a clinical trial organization, and I was standing there with another person from industry. And you came over to us and you, from our LinkedIn profile, found us and said, hi, I'm Monica. You're this person who works for this company. You're this person who works for this company. And you're this person who works for this company. And it actually was so impressive that you actually looked for these people that you wanted to go talk to um, at this conference. And you had like a hit list of the people you wanted to go to. And it's almost like you memorized everybody at the conference. And I, I was just so impressed on the time that you took to learn things about people that you didn't even know. And you were prepared to go talk to them about, you know, different things that they did within their career or their company. And, and I, I look at that and that's something that just always stood out to me. 
Oh, so, you know, you know, that was I, about six years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, yeah, that, I know it's crazy. I remember, <laughs> you know, I, it, but, but relationships are so important. And I have to say, yes, I, you know, I, I say jokingly, I'm not here to make friends, right? I am, I am, but it's, it's, it is all about making relationships. And I think I, I, it's so funny because when I was a teacher, I just had my, you know, I, I should say my teacher friends on LinkedIn, which was like 52 people. I think now I have close to 8,000 contacts. Yep. And, 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 and making those contacts is how you raise awareness. It's how it's building those relationships because I, you know, it, it, I, I have to say COVID has killed me. <laughs> Can you tell I'm an extrovert? <laughs> I, it, 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 I am a people person, but I believe that people really don't get to know you until they meet you in person, face to face. It is that. Yep. And, and, and why I traveled because without those connections and without that relationship, you're not going to get anywhere. I mean, you're really not. And, and, and I know that, that people are on shoestring budgets, but you can do it. I guess I kind of got away with a lot of it because my daughter's a flight attendant and I get discounted tickets from United. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> Didn't mean to plug United in there, but <laughs> I don't know. You might get some stones thrown at you too. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's just really important. And, um, uh, it's all important. And, uh, you, you just have to focus your energy on what's most important in that time and then be flexible and be able to pivot on a dime when you need to. And, uh, but you have to have a plan to do it. You you can't do it. If you don't have a backup plan, you plan for a B and C and D because, (laughs) because if you don't, I mean, just like in COVID, I could, you can't just stop. You've got to, you have to, you have to be flexible. And, um, and, and, and I cry in between that, but, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, growing pain, growing hurts. And, uh, but, but, you know, once you grow, I, you think of it and I hate to be cliche, but I mean, you know, you think about a butterfly, you think about a flower, you think about anything growing, it will end up turning into being something really beautiful. and, And in the end. And even if I don't see it and I've had to, you know, I've had to swallow a, a pretty big pill and, and understanding and accepting that what I'm doing may never even help Beckett, but that's, that's not the whole purpose of why you do it. You, you do it to, to leave a path for someone that came behind you because no one had a, had created a path for me you know, moving. And, and I knew that this was an opportunity to be that pebble in a pond, you know, that you throw in and you make a wave and see, you know, what, what happens, you know, you, you might not ever see what happens and that's okay. Um, you just started something and that, that's why I believe every person in this world has a purpose. You just find it and you, you, you do it. Fear is one of the biggest things that keeps people from doing what, what they need to do. And I'm not the same person I used to be. I used to be very, very self-conscious, very 
shy. I, I wouldn't say shy. I was always talkative, but I always was really worried uh, about putting myself out there because of what people thought of me. And I had to overcome a lot doing that. And uh, I did it because my, my son depended on me to do it. And um, uh, I am not the same person I was um, right. 30 years ago. And we're, and we're very thankful that you're not the same person you were 30 years ago because of all the things that you've accomplished, not Aww. just for Syngap one, but also for, I'd say rare disease everywhere and, and genetic disease, genetic disorders everywhere, you know, especially how active you are with public policy and the Hill and, mm-hmm. you know, being a keynote speaker, a lot of these different uh, meetings and, and conferences. So, you know, we're glad that, that oh. you're not the same person and we're glad that you're out there. We're glad that you're proud and, and we're glad that you're, uh, you're doing this for Beckett, but you're, you're doing this for every, for everybody within the, uh, in the orphan and rare disease community. I so <laughs> having said that, and, you know, kind of looking at wrapping up here soon, um, I want to give you an opportunity for, for folks to be able to get in touch with you. So how can, uh, how can folks learn more about you, uh, Bridge the Gap Foundation and other folks that are uh, within the industry? Uh, sure, sure. Well, uh, currently, you can uh, go to our website at, at bridgesyngap.org. Uh, we're also on Twitter at bsyngap and then Instagram uh, as well, uh, bridgethegapofficial.org. And then I also do consulting. So you can find me at monicaweldonconsulting.com. I'm also on Twitter at mlweldon5.com. Or I shouldn't say .com, at mlweldon5. Um, I also am on Instagram at rare, rare tiger moms, rare, syngap rare tiger mom. And I'm on also on Facebook. I have a Monica Weldon page where you can follow my speaking engagements. And uh, I have, uh, I have my son on there. You know, we, we put, I put my twins out there every now and then. And, um, and then I have a book, uh, Beckett's journey on Amazon. It's in digital form right now called, uh, my special boy, slow moving stream. And, uh, and, uh, I'm hoping to finish up my second book after I finish law school. <laughs> I just started <laughs> law school. <laughs> so, um, I'm getting my master's of science law. So, uh, after that, I will be writing my, finishing up my second book, uh, to publish. So hope, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> I can get all that done. With well, when you, you know, <laughs> always looking for that spare time, right? And, oh, you know, I, I think- right? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today on Rare Voices. Thank you. You've been listening to Rare Voices, brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. If you want to hear more Rare Voices, go to rare-voices.com. There you can learn about our shows, read articles from industry thought leaders, and fill out a form to be a guest on Rare Voices. Again, that's rare-voices.com. I'm Donovan Quill, co-founder of OptimiCare. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to listen for more rare voices all around you each and every day. Mm